The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Ken Mahoney, who is often in the media talking markets. Um, Ken, for those who aren't familiar with your background, talk about who you are. How'd you get uh, involved in markets, and um, how challenging was the transition from being a producer to managing money? Well, I actually, I did it simultaneously, so it's not a transition. So I was first registered. Uh, back in 1989, again, I don't say 89 because in case some people think it's 1889, but back in 1989, I met Series 7. But it was actually after 10 years or so in the business that I approached by Broadway producers and got involved in that. Uh, and a quick background, again, doing this 33 years, uh, I did a closing bell in CNBC for a number of years. That entourage went over to Fox Business. Now I find myself as a co-host on Mornings with Maria often and a guest as well as on, on Charles, uh, make, Charles Payne Making Money. So I'm pretty much on Fox Business almost every week now, writing newsletters. And again, I can't even turn this off. It's like you, the only one I know that probably puts more hours in than myself is you, Michael. Seriously, you're always, you are nonstop and persistent. And few understand is a great quote because when he writes that, that means he's giving you some really goodies right there. All right. But, but, but I want to go, I want to, cause I'm, I'm fascinated by the, by the work you've done as a producer because you've won awards for it. Just talk about that sure. experience. For a I understand what you're saying that it was in parallel, but talk about that. Experience. All right. So one of my best friends is uh, by the name of Mike, uh, sorry, Frank Wildhorn. Uh, Frank Wildhorn actually did songs for Whitney Houston on the West coast, comes over to the right coast and he starts writing for um, shows on Broadway. Actually, he's the first American that three shows running on Broadway, a silver war, Scar Pippenmill and Jekyll Hyde. This is number one. So I don't know. He was he was launching Bonnie and Clyde. This is probably about 2010. He said, Ken, I need some financial people around me. This is like nuts. I mean, like some of these shows are coming up and they're going down. And you know, this is after his kind of uh, tripeat there. So when I looked at these, you know, and the composition of the balance sheets and so forth, again, I was making it look like a stock. And I know it's not. It's a Broadway show, but it's still a business. And really what surprised me, Michael, is that if, you're, if you and I were opening up a pizza shop, you know, we put around six months worth of hmm, safe money in case it takes longer or whatever the case is. These shows weren't raising enough money. It was like, okay, so we opened, we got some money for marketing, and sales would come in. I'm like, wait, all this money going in to stage sets and stuff like that, $8 million, let's say, to raise money for a show, and you have basically like $300,000 in a bank. So I think one of my first moves and kind of got me noticed on Broadway is I started getting through this and say, raise more money. You're not diluting anybody. If it, if, you know, it's like Google. If it does really well, 
You know, it's like, you, your mind being diluted, you know, and so forth. So that's, Michael, that's how I really came to be with that. And, and by the way, they say Wall Street's a small street. And I know a lot of money managers do this so many times and the green rooms at Fox Business and CNBC. I also know at that time, if Wall Street's a small street, Broadway's an alley. So very quickly, the top producers of Broadway, I was having lunch with and dinners with. And from there, you're right, I, want, I went on to win two Tony Awards, nominated for two Grammys and won three Emmys. And so I had quite a run there. I backed off the last couple of years of COVID because the numbers really don't make a lot of sense. I also don't like crime in New York, and that's a whole other thing, and I won't go down that rant. But that's kind of the evolution of how I got started. Mike. All right, so it's interesting because this kind of goes into the, the old trope about uh, right hemisphere of the brain versus left hemisphere of the brain, right. right? So right hemisphere is creativity, left is more analytical. So if you're going to be a producer, you're going to be running a show, right? That's probably more on the creativity side, whereas what you were doing and trying to look at the finances of the shows is more left analytical. And I think it's fairly rare for somebody to, to kind of have both sides of the brain activated at the same time. Um, I mentioned that because creativity is an important aspect to running a business, whether it's running Broadway shows or running an investment management firm like you do with your company. Um, talk about the challenges in merging that creativity with sort of the logical look of the numbers, because that's often a bridge that not too many people are able to walk uh, easily. Obviously, people went to you to do that, but but it's not an easy thing to do for most people intuitively. Yeah, very good question. Look, I, I guess I'm a middle child, so I try to find compromise. I mean, I know when we're doing these, you know, the set directors, they want to spend $3 million on set. And I said, well, that, that doesn't lead to too much money for marketing. So I felt like, you know, I was in a good place because just my nature is always when there is a problem, it's trying to find a solution. So you're right. There is left brain, right brain. There's the creatives that want to do these crazy big sets. And the financial sides that say, well, that's great. We put all the money in the sets. We won't have much money to market the show. <laughs> so a few people come see the beautiful sets. And so that was the balancing act, right? And that's where I think I excelled at only because my personality, that being a middle child, that being someone who would try to find common denominators. And I think that worked for the run that I had there. I find a lot of people tend to underestimate when they want to take an entrepreneurial venture on how much marketing spend they, they probably need to do, right? So in the app world, I have an app. It's not really taken off, at least not yet, called How You Dish. But, you know, there's this kind of rule in the app world, which is that whatever you're going to spend on development, you should probably double it for marketing costs. Um, uh, talk about that dynamic, because I think, you know, it sounds it sounds great to want to say to somebody or to a bunch of colleagues, I'm going to start my own business, I'm going to strike out on my own, I'm going to build this thing, I'm going to produce this show, whatever it is. But if you don't have that runway, it really doesn't matter. And the runway is really not even for operations, it's for marketing. Right. Any business you go into. Also, you be seasonality could be part of it. You know, for the business of Broadway, there was a seasonality to it. We tried to open up shows in, in April and May because come into the summer tour season. But it, you're right. You have to kind of figure out not only the upside, and I think that's, again, with stock investment or Broadway investment or starting your own business – you really have to know your downside too. What are the type of things, you know, what are the threats uh, that you have in your business? Identify them, know what they are, work on those. Of course, there'll always be opportunities, but again, I always find the Broadway crowd very optimistic, which is great, but sometimes they're missing some of the very basic, you know, financial formulas that we use. But again, the same thing. If you look, if you're looking at a stock, you hope you shoot to the moon, you need to protect yourself. And here as an entrepreneur, it's going to take time. I mean, people love to start a business, have a really catchy phrase, and they're ready, they grow out, boom, we have a soft launch. By the way, nothing's a hard launch anymore, right? Everything's a soft launch. You do a soft launch, you know, it takes a while to get traction. Same thing in Broadway. It's so competitive. Everybody knows Wicked. Everybody knows, you know, Book of Mormons. But then you have this new show. It's like, like, what is this thing? 
It does take a runway and you have to build that into your plan and not get frustrated, but it doesn't, very few things shot out, shot out of a cannon and are automatically, automatically successful. It takes time. Right. And, you know, people always hear about the success story stories, but not necessarily the failure. So their, their perception of things is skewed because of the availability heuristic, right? To your point, they think about the wickeds and think about that and they want to get in there. And yeah, I have to assume that Broadway is no different than investing, maybe even VC investing in particular, in that it's very winner take all, right? It ends up being sort of it one is. or two shows that are the are the sort of main thing. In, in your in your experience working Broadway, and we're going to get into markets, folks. I just think this is interesting to talk about. Um, were there any sort of um, commonalities that you were able to uh, uncover or find when it came to what made a Broadway show, from a producer perspective? successful so a lot of these have a tryout before they make it to broadway many of them would start to say art up in um up in massachusetts so they may start in chicago and you know getting in front and watching the audience reaction uh, yet as much as we try to do even the stock market and try to use uh, different parameters it works in different markets works at different times so you could be sitting there in chicago watching the show ready to transfer to new york you see everything that's happening the local critics are writing it's beautiful it comes to Broadway and flops. So as much as I'd like to say, I wish I had, I knew exactly which ones are going to work. There's also a whole bunch of other factors um, that take place that are well beyond your control. So I, I think but, but the best thing for anyone, if anybody even considered going to sing in Broadway, it is a hit or miss. It's like a biotech. It's FDA approval or you don't have enough money and you're going to close and you can be a zero dollars and be delisted. So it's either, either, either it's feast or famine on Broadway. And again, more feast than I'm sorry, more famine than feast, but certainly it reminds me of biotechnology investing, getting from the FDA, and either it going through or mm, your company gets delisted or, in this case, the, the show closes. The uh, the famine or feast is an interesting aspect of Broadway, which, again, also already relates to investing because that partially, I think, explains the fang phenomenon over the last decade plus because you were feasting if you were in those areas, but you were pretty much famine and everything else because – everything pretty much underperformed these five or six mega cap companies. So that becomes a transition into managing money over the last decade, let's say pre COVID in particular. Um, what is your process from RA perspective, from an investment management perspective uh, in terms of constructing portfolios? Cause you're doing the media around talking stocks, you know, you're, right. you're you've got a very analytical approach to things, but yeah, I always make it a point that, you know, how you communicate is one thing, how you manage money is a whole different thing in some cases. Right. I know we have a lot of uh, listeners here now building up. So I want to be very, let, let me just go through almost real time. And this was earnings season and what, what, what to do, what not to do, what we do. Uh, first off, do not jump in front of a stop because you like it in front of earnings. It is literally Russian roulette, right? I mean, you've seen this earnings season, the feast or famine mode comes right back to mind, right? Uh, you had some feasts like, you know, Microsoft had some things like, you know, fill in the blank, meta and so forth. But here's a playbook that's laid out pretty well that I've, that I've seen work. So, again, you don't jump in front of uh, any earnings. Okay, okay let, let everybody else, you know, do the 50-50 flip of a coin. The next day or you find out this, the company has now raised guidance. Uh, they beat their numbers. They're going to buy back more stock and pay, and pay more dividends. Now, you may have to pay 6 7% higher for that. Again, I'll contrast what not to do in a second. And Microsoft, by the way, is to me the poster child of this earnings season. They came out uh, after hours and all those type of things hit. And uh, again, very shareholder friendly, buying back stock, raising dividends, and so forth. And what, what I like about that is now analysts start tripping over themselves to give 
a higher guidance. I said, by the way, they didn't do anything before the stop. <laughs> they didn't make any uh, changes before the stop. And now the company comes out. Um, and now you have, uh, let's say, Microsoft targets its stock trading at 270, 280. Uh, but again, start around 250, 260 before earnings. But now you're going to get the upgrades. You're going to get three and a quarter and then jumping in front of the other guy. Oh, 350. You have to understand how Wall Street works. The analysts are really behind the curve. The companies lead and then they follow. Conversely, earnings season. Again, like I said, Russian roulette. Don't front about, don't buy, don't short. It, it's, there's no edge there. Now you come out with a company like Meta and they come out and say, well, we missed our numbers uh, and we're guiding lower and, you know, we still, still need to invest in more of this metaverse. That is a niche little thing, by the way. I don't see acceptance. And they're kind of going away from the main business of rifling our information and selling to third-party uh, third marketers who don't even know what they're even doing with that information. Thank you very little for that, Zuckerberg. But see the contrast. Now, a lot of people say, I want to buy meta. It's down 30%. It's down 20% after earnings. I'm telling you, you're going to be in quicksand. You're going to be in quicksand, and the opportunity cost of being something that's already raised guidance and buying back stock like a Microsoft is immense, and that spread's getting wider and wider during earnings season. So I hope I'm answering your question, Mike, but specifically with earnings season and how we approach it and how we jump on the Microsoft train. And by the way, we, we actually are shorting those companies who are missing numbers, guiding lower, and in this case, Zuckerberg, don't like them, but that's another story to itself. <laughs> All right, so so you mentioned the word uh, playbook, and I know you've you've written a number of books, uh, which again goes back to the creativity side because yeah, being an author is a really <laughs> hard thing. I don't know if people really appreciate how much time and effort goes into it, and it goes back to it's all winner take all. There's this old joke that being an author for a book is like having a very expensive business card in terms of time. Um, talk about some of the some of the uh, things that went into your books, um, because obviously you're trying to. You know, you've built a name using you know that content over the years, but you're obviously trying to also help people with the content of those of those works. So, talk about that uh, the book side a little bit. Yeah, so on, on the book side, um, you're right. It's like most take about nine months. I was kind of kidding around, you know, with women say, you know, it took me as long to have this, uh, have this baby book, so to speak, and have it come out. But what I first like to do is kind of do an outline chapters of what I'm trying to build for and. Really try to break it down for the average person. This is not very sophisticated. This is not like Barron's. My, my goal initially is just try to break it down. And what I do, Michael, is actually with these all these different kind of um, voice memos, stuff like that, I actually have a conversation as if I'm explaining to somebody. So when I translate that or, you know, to the book, it comes across very conversational. At least that's what I hope and I, that's the feedback we receive. That, as if I'm reading to you, right? we're having a conversation and we're breaking those down. And, you know, there's certain principles that are true. Um, all the way through from William O'Neill, and I'm sure a lot of people know his work from Best Business Daily. A lot of the work that we do, we definitely subscribe to that. But again, each chapter kind of builds on each other. For instance, I think the most popular one on Amazon I have is called Not Your Father's Retirement. And people get that right away. My father, as it turns out, was Local 38. He's not here with us, unfortunately. But Local 38, C-Middle worker. He had a pension, an annuity. Gosh, vision, dental. He had all these things, Okay. And not your father's retirement, not your mom's retirement, not grandma or grandpa. Grandma had a, a Reader's Digest a pension. But there's a lot of opportunity. We can develop our own pension, so to speak, by putting way to 401k plans or 403b plans that we work out and, and having these match if you get that or pre-tax the money's coming out. So there's a lot of things in that book, but not your father's retirement. It says, hey, it is not your retirement like your father. Companies are not taking care of you. You got to take care of yourself. Here's the tools. Here's the strategy. Let's go to work. And I hope these books are very conversational. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Hello listeners, Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. So there's going to be some people that cynically will say there's no way in hell uh, they will ever retire, right? Because there's a lot of dynamics to inflation and and things, to your point, being very different uh, today. And I'm sure, you know, you, you talked to, I'm sure, your fair share of younger investors um, and are, who are staring down, you know, incredibly high home prices, staring down uh, wages that are not keeping up to the basic price of goods, you know, for things that they need. Um, how do you, what's the biggest piece of advice from the standpoint of planning for one's retirement that you can possibly give? Because, you know, there's there's this feeling that you have to keep on investing, but meanwhile, people's credit cards stay elevated. And right. I would make this point that, you know, you get a guaranteed rate of return by paying off your credit card first, uh, by not having to pay the interest as opposed to gambling it to some extent in some random cryptocurrency or stock. Look, it's a really difficult environment. You know, it's like a seesaw, you know, you take away from one thing and it rises on the other side. It's a great balancing act of, again, living today, but also saving for tomorrow. And if you really love what you do, you don't have to retire. I mean, personally, I don't know if I'm going to retire. I mean, I like writing books. I love doing radio. I love doing TV. love helping clients. I mean, so... Yeah, maybe I won't grind it out like Michael grind. Like you grind it out, uh, you know, you know, fourteen hour days, six days a week, whatever type of thing. And but maybe you know, downshift a little bit. But I, I've noticed in one of the books I wrote, I spoke about this. I'll, I'll call it a serial retirement. Serial, S E R I, not not serial, serial, where people retire and say, "Okay, I'm done. My first act." Here's a Broadway analogy. First act is done. The grind, the commute. I'm done. But my second act, I'm going to take a few months off. I'm going to have a gap year. Again, we know gap years from high school to college. Uh, but how about, how about retirement into a new thing? But that second act, though, Michael, is something that they love doing. So just you know, don't remember the first act is that grind. Got to pay the bills. Got to pay off the credit cards, as you mentioned. But somewhere down the road, if you continue to work, you flip it on its head where it's your purpose comes first. Something you enjoy doing, secondarily get income. And a quick example I can give you one of my clients Retired from insurance, adjusting New York City, all the commute, all that yuckiness. And he loved giving scuba lessons. And that was his kind of go-to. You know, love, you know, teaching family safety. So before they go on his trips, you know, they go jump into YMCA. And as it turned out, now he's going on cruises with these, you know, he's got a, some other um, swimming, uh, scuba uh, instructors underneath him. So I say that because always hold on to your passion. Always hold on to your hobby. You may not be doing it right now in your present incarnation. I get it. But at some point, many years down the road, I hope that your second act is more purposeful and secondarily about income. Okay, so, so I like the, the, the discussion around act because I put that in the name of the space, the stock market's final act. And yeah, you, you know better than anybody else that you know, typically there's a three-act structure to most things when it comes to a narrative, a story. So act one was COVID. Act mm. two is inflation. The question then is, what is the final act? What's the third act? So I know you do a lot of fundamental analysis and do a lot of stock individual uh, uh, analysis in general. But if you were going to take a step back and look at the macro environment, 
How do you think this third act plays out in terms of inflation? Um, I think the Fed's going to mess it up. That's been pretty much their nature. You know, I get the analogy, like remember Sully, uh, who uh, flew the plane into the Hudson River, somehow kept the nose up, you know, kind of hot, 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 come in hot and landed it pretty well. You know, we're asking the Federal Reserve to somehow have that type of soft landing, which I think it's going to happen. I think things are going to break, unfortunately. Um, so I think you're right. So COVID, as you said, first act, second act, probably spend way too much money chasing too few goods, definition of inflation, here's the environment. And most likely the question is just how deep of recession. By the way, I'm in the camp that we're in a recession already. The numbers I've seen, the New York State manufacturer number falling off a cliff. What we saw first quarter, negative GDP, second quarter, slight GDP. We may get like a little better print this third quarter GDP, some inventory adjustments. Um, but this is a very difficult time to navigate. The market's telling us that. And again, I do believe the Federal Reserve, who, by the way, whiffed back in the fourth quarter of 2018, and I mean whiffed, they're talking about raising rates only to have an emergency rate cut. This is how we're dealing. And by the way, my criticism goes beyond this because there's seven uh, Fed governor um, members, two of which are from academia, five of which from government jobs. We don't have anybody at the Fed that actually ran a business as an entrepreneur, hire, fire, inventories, you know, dealing with you know, insurance. We're dealing with seven people that basically don't even know the first thing about business, to tell you the truth. So I'm, I'm a really big critic of the unfortunate administration, for one, and also uh, the Federal Reserve. So again, I don't think they're going to land it like Sully is my, my long story short. And I think the third act is a deeper recession. Uh, we're just kind of dipping our toe into it right now. So, Michael, you want to attack? I just thought that. So, uh, good, great question. A very funny you said VIX. In the models we probably we use a lot of quantitative models. They're proprietary. Uh, I get some really smart math people behind it. Um, and actually, that VIX, why it's not supposed to be directional, when it lifts its ugly head up, uh, you can bet they're putting on some negative bets, putting on some protective bets. And in the models that we have of risk on, risk off, uh, again, highly correlated to the VIX, the VIX starts rising is one of the things I'm looking at. Ben, right? Thanks, Ben. Uh, that is one of the things I look at very closely. Conversely, we had this nice little rally since, let's say, middle, third week of June. You notice the VIX came from 30, 28, started going in a direction. Calmer waters could stay long more than like one hour, maybe stay long for like three days or something like that. We started seeing that. But now since Friday, uh, yesterday, actually, the VIX was up about 15%. It's, at its high, it was up 18%. So, yeah, I'm all over the VIX, and it's in our models. Anyway. I would say that, I mean, from for whatever it's worth, my vantage point, I've been you know, pretty public and talk about this idea that I don't see how a bear market could be over in stocks until a bear market is over for housing. And housing is only now starting to really show some some real weakness, right? And it's, there's a reason why I've got lumber as my right eye on the Twitter profile, because housing is historically the key leading indicator for risk on, risk off dynamics, volatility, credit creation, illiquidity, so on and so forth. You're in this kind of strange position here where everyone's talking about inflation, but they maybe should be talking more about the disinflation or even outright deflation that housing could could be a driver of if these prices were to keep on uh, going down. And I, that, that's an interesting thing to also talk through, Kent, because a lot of people's assets that you know is is their homes. And obviously, you're dealing with some high net worth investors and individuals where uh, they've got to balance out their asset allocation, not just in terms of their liquid portfolio that they have with you, 
but also in terms of uh, their home and the correlation of their home to their liquid investments. So when you look at the totality of an individual's wealth, how do you factor in uh, the concentration of wealth in one's home as a as a consideration to diversification or portfolio? Right. And if I just just touch on quickly about um, again, anecdotally, I have a lot of clients or a number of clients that are in real estate and I check in with them. And just, you know, a few months ago, you know, you're looking at a lot of these homes having 30, 40 people at an open house, right? And two or three, four people just jumping over each other trying to outbid. Now we're getting these open houses with three or four, if you're lucky, three or four showing up on a nice Saturday afternoon. So again, that's more Northeast centric, but still you're seeing this. And again, as um, Michael's saying here and what kind of drives he believes, you know, the lumber and so forth, we're only in the second inning, uh, third inning of the real estate kind of downturn. I mean, this just started and it's going to take some time. Uh, and by the way, I like the economy of thinking about going down the throughway in the middle lane, going like 70 miles an hour, which we were probably about I don't know, 8, 12 weeks ago. And that same car is, you know, the economy is zooming down the middle line. It's kind of feel like we're in a right-hand lane now, right, with our hazards on, right, going 35 miles an hour. That's what it feels like as far as the economy, which, again, bodes well to that. Getting back to your, your question about real estate, I have to say, though, I watch real estate as close as I can because – that is usually the number one asset, not financial assets, not the stock market that we talk about often. The number one asset people have is their own home. Now, with that, they feel like like the wealth effect, and they see the neighbor's values going up, and they sold. You know what? Let's put that deck on. Let's put that kitchen together. Let's do something around the house that put $40,000 in. It'll be actually worth $60,000 more. But the reverse is true also, right, Mike? When all of a sudden now they see prices go lower. You know what? I'm going to hold off on that deck. I'm going to hold off on you know redoing that kitchen, and that's what we haven't seen yet. Appliance sales will start plummeting, and and so forth. Remember the the best analogy I can give you is what Wayne, Wayne Gretzky said, the old time uh, leading scorer in the NHL. It's not where the puck is, it's where the puck is going. Michael does a lot of writing around that. I try to do that too. I try to assess where the puck is going. Where the puck is, forget about it. It's it's and somehow he scored so many goals by where the puck is going. So where the puck is going, I believe is a downturn in real estate. And then so and then what you find for people who own these properties don't want to put more money into it. And then we have this unfortunately vicious cycle that ensues. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with how you dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Um. Okay, so a funny thing happened to me, Ken. Um, I think it was last week. I can't ever tell what day it is anymore, given the sheer number of things that I do per day. And I know you know what that's like too. <laughs> but um, so so I actually reached out to Charles Payne from Fox, Fox Business because I wanted to have him on a Twitter space because you know I think he's thoughtful in the way he looks at markets, and I like getting you know media personalities every now and then just to kind of switch up the topics and the conversation. So. We went back and forth on DM. I invited him to space. He actually invited me on his show. And then I appeared uh, last week. And it was remarkable to me that after I appeared on on Fox Business, which is different than Fox, I actually had some people no longer following me. They actually yeah. started unfollowing me. And I, was, I, and I said in a tweet, it's like world gone mad. There's nothing that I said in that conversation I haven't said in any other place. It was not political at all. But 
it is it was really a uh, eye opening to me how there's such a visceral reaction and viewpoint uh, by some that if you appear on some media outlet which doesn't necessarily agree with your political views and Fox Business is not that I don't think uh, it's very independent. Right, right, right. Yeah, relative right. to you know, broader sort of general news. So um, where I'm going with this is that um, how do we get to a place where uh, we're now uh, starting to literally judge people's knowledge based on where they show up? I mean, to me, that's a very strange dynamic. And I understand that there's a lot of people that, you know, obviously don't agree with Fox, don't agree with MSNBC. And I'm not interested in that kind of conversation, but I'm more interested in how we got to a place where people are not able to even – look at a venue or a distribution outlet and and basically assume that anyway that's on that distribution outlet is like the message of however they perceive that that venue i, I scratch my head all the time about this it is so polarizing again i know because since the pandemic i've probably been on fox business about 200 times uh, and in fact by last week i was on for three hours from 6 a.m to 9 a.m had a lot of dad jokes but i did my thing um so i'm there a lot and but here we develop notes before we go on uh ben uh we have these uh you know, breakout sessions, figure out kind of what's important, put these notes together. No one spits them back and say, oh, you went too far right with this. Oh, you've gone too far left with it. No one, there's no gatekeeper at Fox Business, as, as far as I'm aware, that takes your notes and say, you can't say this or don't do this. So Which, always, right, and that's kind of a lot of people's, you know, uh, opinions on that, right? It's like, you know, one thing right. is people have the conspiracy aspect of it. And I, I, and yes, there is evidence, by the way, that there are some messages or themes that come from the very top, but I don't know if it necessarily goes to Fox Business, but... Yeah, no, it definitely. And, but I've seen that too. But again, you know, I don't have as many tw- Twitter followers. I think you're up to like four million Twitter followers and the work that you do. But but it is a shame though because look, I'm I'm Red Sun Independent, so I, I'm actually, I'm actually going to start. I'm kidding around. I don't have time for this. But I'm going to start a new party called the Common Sense Party. That's that's really where I go with all these things. It just is it is it, is it common sense for this? I want to explain. Is it common sense for that? Dot dot dot. That's why I try to just try to apply common sense, whether it's a market, you know, is it common sense to spend trillions of dollars in an overheated economy already? No. So, but that's not a political view, right, left, or, you know, it's kind of just a common sense point of view. And that's, that's, I always felt that, but you're right. Over the years, I've attracted more conservative clients because of being on Fox business so many times versus not, but then again, we've got some great discussions. Look, if you're far right, far left, to me, that's kind of wacky. I kind of find myself moderate, you know, breaking right a little bit, but we can have great discussions and you're right. If there's really good content and, and there's different distribution, you know, you should plug into all of it. I mean, I watch MSNBC, CNBC, uh, Fox Business, of course. I, I watch it all, you know, and I like to hear different opinions and then make my own opinion to itself. So I think as we're out there trying to learn, you're right. We really shouldn't label. I mean, we shouldn't just label somebody because they come from left, right, center, wherever. But here we are and this is the world and we're not going to be able to change that, unfortunately. The um the aspect of, of of naturally attracting just because you're on Fox Business more conservative investors is interesting. I would argue, and this is kind of more from my own observation, but this could be my own echo bubble that uh, echo echo uh, uh, chamber. It could be that maybe just in general there are more uh, allocators who tend to lean on the conservative side versus the liberal side. I don't know if there's any evidence around that, but I am. Uh, curious to hear your thoughts on if, in uh, from your perspective, different uh, mindsets around politics impact uh, the asset allocation decision, right? Because it's like any any anybody that is uh, that I've talked to that ends up being uh, bearish on stocks is inherently uh, bearish on Democrats, and then if Republicans right, are in point. office, right, then it's the other way around. And it, it re- in reality, it doesn't I can I would argue as far as stock prices, there's really not much 
if any correlation between you know presidential policies and equity. Not policies, at all. Right. But, yeah, but talk yeah, about and, that a bit. Yeah. So some presidents get way too much credit for a strong economy. Some presidents just fall in a bad cycle and <laughs> they get blamed for everything. It's like a coach of a football team, right? They inherit a football team. They got a lot of talent. The next thing they're, you know, 10, uh, 11 and six at the end of the year or vice versa. So I, again, I, I just try to look um, when it comes to the market, I, I, again, I try to be agnostic. I'm not bullish or bearish. I mean, my general nature is a bullish person, meaning I look at glass a half full as much as I can. Hey, I know there, there's weeds in the garden. We need to pull those out when that happens. But I, I kind of think, um, when you're driving along at night, and I always like to give analogies because this is kind of gives you whether I'm bullish or bearish or markets. And, and you're driving at night and you have the headlights on. You see, what, 30 yards in front of you, 40 yards in front of you, and you watch out for the deer and all that stuff. To sit there and drive and try to figure out what's two miles down the road, five miles down the road, yes, we want to know where the hockey puck is going, as I said earlier, but it's hard. You don't get as much clarity. So if, I, if I'm bullish, it's because I'm just looking at these little cycles at the next six weeks or four weeks, and we'll, we'll make changes as we come up. But get too stuck and too grounded in a bearish argument or a bullish argument. Like, heck, we've had a nice tradable bounce since the middle of June. The VIX, as I mentioned, uh, kicked off for us, gave us a risk on. But start defining it. Okay, is it, a, is it a rally in the bear market? Probably. But it doesn't mean you go on the sidelines because, oh, I'm still very bearish. But right funny, it was a nice tradable rally. You know, we, we started making higher lows. Volume started coming in. Volatility started going up. There's definitely a risk-on move. So I say that because you're going to pigeonhole yourself with politics, with naming yourself bullish or bearish as, as it goes with the politics versus having the flexibility of looking down the road 30 or 40 yards. No, no, I agree. And, and it's, just, it's just amazing to me how political views will impact one's feeling as, as to where the stock market will go. When again, there's plenty of evidence that suggests there's really not much of a of a correlation or relationship. I mean, yes, some policies at the margin, obviously, especially if they're extreme on taxes, um, have an impact. But it's like even even this Inflation Reduction Act with 15 percent on the on the tax rate, you'd think that would negatively impact large, large caps. Large caps are still, you know, on a relative basis, the only game in town. So, right. uh, you know, I, I, I guess I don't know how you can uh, break one's mindset, though, on that, because, as you know, once somebody makes up their mind uh, politically, they start seeing everything through the political lens, including their own asset allocation mix. Right. And so as an advisor, it's for, very hard to break that, right? Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, jump in, but, but it reminds me, it's like they wake up looking for something to annoy them. I mean, whatever side you're on, you know, left, right, center, you wake up and you start trying to find that's going to aggravate you, you know, go through your newsfeed. Like, oh, this is really aggravating. You know, it's like you're looking for these things. And again, I, I would imagine right now, most, you know, that are kind of, you know, let's say Republicans, I would say they're probably bearish, you know, and, and perhaps those who are big supporters of Biden are kind of bullish. But again, it shouldn't be that way. I think to me, technicals carry the day most of the time. Got to understand the fundamentals, got to be eclectic. But um, it, it does surprise me how people are so polarized. And if you said two plus two is four to a, a specific political figure or to a candidate, they'll say two plus two is six anyway. So I, I don't know how you, I don't know, you can't fix that. Do you find that... Um over time, given the sheer number of years you've been doing this, that underlying clients want to see more activity from from you as an advisor, right? Because, you know, you look at all these stats on whole average holding periods. It used to be, you know, I've made this point many times in the 50s, 60s, average holding period for a mutual fund was maybe four four years. Now, the holding period is four or five months. Um, right. And a lot of it has to do with short-termism and, and attention spans. But, um do you, do you get a lot of investors, you know, saying, you know, what are you doing in the portfolio today? Why don't we change this? You know, talk about that that dynamic because 
as a fiduciary, you've got to do the right thing for the client, but the client is right. going to put pressure on you to do things that may not be good for them. Yeah, so we, we try to do it in the right way where the market leads and we follow, meaning, yes, we're going to try to you know, be opportunistic in some trends that we see, but I think we st- stay kind of grounded to the fact that the market leads. And when you have a tailwind, we don't know that tailwind is going to last you know, two weeks, two months, or two years. You stay with it. I mean, we had like the summer of 21. I'd like to reminisce about that. I mean, I've talked about the VIX and how it's so important in our models. You know, we had a VIX down to 12 or 14, setting records. So we don't know. I mean, we, you're staying that trade for six months. We let the market dictate. And then towards the end of November, things start. Again, the index is held up underneath it was carnage. You wrote about this. I remember, like, you know, the Zooms and Teledocs and all those kind of Kathy Wood, innovation of not very innovative names, all got pummeled. But yet the indexes were holding up. But then we saw a sea change, right? We told inflation is no longer transitory. Uh, we saw these numbers start changing. Uh, and then that went into more of a bearish move, you know, and then we had, so some of it, to tell you the truth, the market changes, you know, we want to change with it. Uh, sometimes you can't over anticipate because that could lead you there. But as far as activity, I think the activity is more dictated. Look, if we, from here is a bull market, we're going to stay the course. We know activity, just stay where you are. If it's going to be choppy, which it is, yeah, we're going to have to kind of, kind of move and maneuver around a little bit. All right. So that, that lends itself a little bit to a discussion around the bond market for a moment because, you know, from an asset allocation perspective, you can't get away from bonds, right? I mean, right. if you share, you've got to have some income producing assets beyond stocks that have, you know, quote unquote, less risk. Although, obviously, this year, bonds and stocks have acted very similarly in their drawdown. But um, in this drawdown that's happened in the bond market, um, do you find that individual investors say to themselves, well, you know what, it's fine. I'm still getting my checks from the bond portion. It's still money good. Or are people looking at it from a total return perspective? Because I think the viewpoint on stocks and the viewpoint of bonds ends up being different, even though in reality it should be be based on total return, not just the income component. Right. So I think the 60-40 model that we lived and breathed on for so long has changed. As you said, the January through June 30th period is going to go down as one of the worst periods. I mean, we know from the equity market from January to June 3rd, that's worth six months to start the year since 1970. And it's like 52 years ago. And same for the bonds. Bonds got blasted with higher interest rates. And so, you know, to me, the buffer is cash. You know, we have to remember it's stocks, bonds, cash. So in a rising rate environment, and you feel you have to be allocated towards bonds, I don't feel compelled to be that way. I'd rather go to cash, you know, more defensively and not deal, even making next to nothing, money market rate-wise. But to me, that's a better move than going to bonds. I will say, uh, I'll, give, I'll give a nice little nugget uh, to your listeners today. Um, one that I think is underreported, and again, say that, everything's kind of out there, but to, to learn a little bit more about closed-end funds, and I just want to kind of share that with you a little bit. They're the sister to open-end funds. Uh, unlike open-end funds, though, uh, they don't add shares. And when we have this big bond market debacle, of course, you go buy bonds if you're looking for kind of a total return play, that is, you know, get the yield and now you're coming in lower prices. And there's a lot of accidental 10% closed-end funds now. Those that came out of $20 a share, they were yielding 6 or 7 imploded by the higher interest rates down to now $15 a share, many of them trading below net asset value. And now, as I said, accidental, now they're, they're trading around 10%. Now, again, this is not a recommendation, disclaimer, disclaimer, especially this has other uses. But it's something I don't think, Michael – Again, I know you don't discuss much of it. Uh, I have lately because I've seen, I think the best way to go to a bond, by the way, if someone's trading lower than net asset value, it doesn't mean it's going to make that spread up, okay? But if I had to buy a basket of bonds 
Would I rather buy a closed-end bond fund that buys that basket at 10 15% below net asset value or an open-end bond fund that is at net asset value? So to me, there's inefficiency. They threw the baby out the bathwater like they did in stocks. This area is kind of left for dead at the moment. Uh, and I think that's an opportunity. Again, you have to educate yourself how they work versus open-end funds. But when you see the yields and you see the trading below net, net asset value, it's a very interesting way to look at this. By the way, on that point, I'm glad you mentioned closed-end funds because that's not a topic I often hit on these spaces. But I've seen research, which I think intuitively makes sense, that if you see a an enormous discount in a, a particular asset class and closed-end funds within that, that asset class, that actually tends to mark the bottom, right? Because you end up having this discount being driven by a lot of forced sellers and the forced sellers, you know, why are they being forced to sell? Because you're in a severe decline. It's sort of an extreme contrarian indicator. Same thing with premiums, right? If something ends up having a massive premium because everyone's buying it up and uh, there's an illiquidity aspect to it, you can probably fade that total asset class just from that perspective. Just kind of an interesting uh, discussion. Okay, thanks, Jason, for that. It's a shame to really walk around the planet and walk around where you live and that have the people you hate because you're side with one political party. I think that's crazy. And also I think it's crazy for businesses to exclude one side or the other side because in your business model, you want to be able to serve 100% of people or nearly 100% of people. So uh, again, I, I, you know, I don't know, maybe town hall meetings. I mean, maybe we could flesh this out. Uh, I'm 57 years old, maybe 57 years young some days, but mostly old. And I've never seen anything like this as polarizing as it is where people don't even have conversations over Thanksgiving. Uh, again, a certain family member, you can't even mention a certain political name because they go crazy. And it's divided us not only as a nation, but it divided us even at home. So uh, I don't know, Jason, I don't know what the answer is, but certainly I hate to see that, um, especially all of us going through COVID uh, simultaneously, and we all miss each other, to be able to get together and say, no, we can't talk about this. And that's crazy. That's very interesting. I've been recommending that. So HELOC is, um, again, it's going to it's gonna stay at a rate for, let's say, seven years or 10 years. Look, the velocity of mortgage rates is kind of what's starting the second or third inning decline in real estate. Like I said, I believe it's second or third inning. And, um, you know, you look at Christmas time in December, you know, you're at 275 to 3% on mortgage rates. I mean, I know it's a historic low, but six months later, it doubled. I mean, the same person with the same affordability factors, they're going to buy a house for $500,000. That same payment now is three fifty, so either that you know home or potential homeowner makes up that gap and pays more to get that home, or they out of the market and say I can't afford the five hundred thousand home based on the rates presently. So I think interest rates are having a huge again. I think it's a combination. I think people are worried about some of the layoffs they're seeing, concerned about inflation, uh, but what really trigger this, I believe, is the velocity which mortgage rates doubled in about a six month period. I want to. There's a uh, question in the uh, thread. Uh, actually, there's an interesting question from Russell Leffingwell. Uh, Russell, if you don't mind, I'm going to just read it from the tweet. But he said, "General question. Uh, going back to this early discussion around politics and bullish or bearish based on one's political view. Uh, it's an interesting way of framing. It says, why shouldn't someone be bullish or bearish on politics or party if the policies that those parties promote have direct implications to all sorts of aspects for the economy?" Energy policy, as an example, put another way, are we sure politics don't matter at this time? So I think it's kind of interesting, you know, maybe branch to go off of, right? Because yeah, no we have this real energy hey, crisis, right? right. And, right. Look, a lot I of people in our it's policy driven, right? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm out there on national TV. It's a huge policy mistake. There's, there's not been a transition to go from fossil fuels to renewables. Heck, I would love to, again, I own a, a Tesla. There you go. Um, but again, it's... 
we're not there in technology. I can't put a solar panel on my car yet. So even that, I, I know I'm not saving the world because I'm plugging into electricity. It's, it's going five times the amount than that of the air conditioner. So you know how much <laughs> electricity it takes to, you know, to run an air conditioner. Think about that. But he is right because I've been a very, I think part of the supply chain problems we have is this kind of the vicious cycle. Wholesalers get this higher energy cost. Look at diesel. Diesel's higher than regular unleaded. Um, and, you know, you got these trucks going six miles for, for a gallon, you know. So, you know, you stack down the wholesalers. They're taking that a hot potato. They pass uh, to the producers. Producers pass to consumers. I believe me, I will tell you, I think that this, this administration's policy for energy is dead wrong. There needs to be a transition. You can't, because of political timeframes, you know, yak out, uh, you know, fuel. And here we are now, reliant on, again, reliant on Afghanistan and Iran and some very spooky creatures. But it's not just a U.S. thing, right? I mean, it's a, it's a global phenomenon, right? So I, I guess the question is, how much are U.S. policies to blame versus German policies and views on nu- nuclear as an alternative as an example? Well, I don't think this is well thought out by this administration. Um, it's kind of, it's like the vote getting, and that's for both sides, by the way, but this administration particularly about getting the green, getting the green and so forth. But they haven't thought through, like look in California, where the highest penetration of EVs, electric vehicles, uh, are there. And I don't know, maybe it's 10, 15% of the cars on the road are now, uh, you know, most of them are Teslas, but most of them you know, are electric vehicles. You know, they have constant brownouts. They have constant, you know, blackouts. So it's hard to kind of think, like, again, right in front of us. And I, look, I have to tell you, Jen Psaki, the former press secretary, she was quite smug. The question was, well, now with, uh, you know, about gas prices and she's not there anymore. And she said, she kind of smiles. She goes, well, then you should be in the market for an EV. Well, the problem is, you know, most EVs are $50,000. takes you six months to order one. That's what it took us. To. And so it, and it's, that's not the answer. So the answer is not, if we go to EV, fine. But step two is, how are we going to be able to make sure the grid survives this, more, I mean, this many people plugging into? Oh, by the way, some of these places that, are, again, are EVs that are plugging into, they're coal, you know, <laughs> which is another problem to itself. So I think... Uh, this administration uh, sometimes wants to run into it. We don't have the technology. I wish we had the technology. Again, solar panel on top of my car, that'd be great. But I, I, I think while it is, as oil is a international commodity, we have made a number of missteps here, all in the sake of politics. Very good question. Very, but these are all great questions. Very sophisticated bunch. Um, yeah, I mean... This is going at warp speed, you know, the adaptation of uh, cryptos, uh, currencies. You know, again, we, we saw now Chinese are using different currencies to toil instead of U.S. dollars. Um, it's really, you know, this is very serious. Um, again, all these issues are serious, but are we going to use or lose our dollar dominance? And if we do, you know, take the dominoes that fall and what happens there. So I think it's a really good question. I don't know where it's going. Uh, but it's not going in the right direction. Uh, for us as Americans, we kind of like to be the standard, so to speak, with the dollar. Uh, but you're starting to see other countries, you know, using their local currency and not using the dollar. And that, that's a very troubling sign. Well, it's, it's important to note, I've had conversations with like Anas Al-Hajiya on this point uh, that, you, you know, for something to be a reserve currency, it ultimately has to be all about oil driving it, right? Oil is what determines the reserve currency, not not the other way around, uh, I would argue. Um, so from that perspective, let's let's talk about the way the dollar has behaved, again, from the context of somebody managing you know, portfolios, doing asset allocation, because the irony is that the dollar ended up being the best hedge to inflation 
imaginable the way this has played out, which is really bizarre. And I get it. It's more about weakness around the euro and yen. But when you see the dollar doing what it's doing, taking out the broader question of what happens from a longer term perspective, from a sequence of return and risk management perspective, does does the dollar's movement cause you to take on a more defensive posture to overweight the particular part of your asset allocation mix for clients? Talk about how currency impacts actual uh, risk in, in client portfolios. Right. So the Fed, with anticipation of more rate hikes, makes a strong currency. But summer's almost ending. Quick little commercial, go to Europe, dollar to dollar. Every time we go to Europe, it's 130, 140, pretty big haircuts at the dollar to dollar. So there are some good things. But um, the multinationals, and I actually did an um, uh, analytical view on uh, Deer last week and breaking down their numbers. And these multinationals are not liking this the strong dollar. Um, you know, there's always kind of, you know, pluses and minuses of having a strong dollar, a weak dollar. But in the end, when you know, we start doing earnings and, and bring those back from local currency and you know, dealing with some of the dollar strength, you know, uh, C-suite individuals, CEOs, CFOs, and the conference calls in the earning season, that came up a lot, you know, the strength of the dollar. Now, again, of course, they hedge it, but they don't fully hedge it. So I, I think, you know, going forward, the dollar continues to get stronger. These multinationals uh, are going to start, you know, raising their hand and saying we're, we're impacted by the strong dollar. And, uh, you know, instead of expecting 55 cents, expect more like, you know, 48 cents. So, Michael, I think that's what's going to happen if we continue. Right now, we think it's an aberration. Not we, but just in general, maybe there's a little aberration because the Fed rates are going higher. But it becomes more of a norm of higher rates. You know, it may stick to some balance sheets and also may may hurt some uh, some earnings. But, but you know what's frustrating about that? So, so this point about strong dollars should hurt the multinationals, that means that it should hurt large caps relative to small caps more because of the global operations right versus and, domestic right right exactly right so so but but the the I, I use the term frustrating purposely because this is why even the um you would think in a strong dollar environment smaller cap domestic companies would outperform large caps it hasn't been- well I, I and i you're right and i think you know the way i look at it you know small caps are more domestic domestic driven they don't have operations all overseas but i think the concerns about a recession the large companies have a stronger balance sheets to get through. And I think that's what the thinking is here. And this kind of kind of sidestep of large cap versus small cap is that the small cap in general, they're, they're feeding growth. There's no dividends. Cash balance is not that strong. They can get downgraded by some of the agencies, Moody's, S&P, and they get harder thereabouts to raise more money. With cash, you know, cows like the Microsofts and the Apples and Berkshire Hathaways, you know, in an environment like this where people are really worried They'd rather kind of march on with the kind of proven big numbers. Again, now we get to a cycle and market starts doing well. Yeah, we'll trade up from large, mid to small. But right now, it's still kind of very tentative. And I think, you know, balance sheets mean something. Uh, it hasn't for so long, but I think balance sheet means something. And their large cap growth has a lot of, a bigger, much bigger advantage than the small caps. Another question I'm seeing in the thread here from Donald Elder. I'm going to modify the question he puts in the thread here is, uh, recently sold my house in San Diego, bought a new house, still have quite a bit of cash left, invested in dividend stocks, ETFs for steady income return. Would it be unwise to try and time the market by selling everything and sitting out September? So this is not investment advice, but I want to turn yeah. this into a broader question about sure. if somebody has a windfall, right? Somebody has a windfall, they have a lot of cash, and they want to do something with that cash. Yeah, I think traditional uh, asset allocation would, would argue that it doesn't matter when you time it if you have a long, not long enough time frame, but the reality is you know, people always want to think about coming to have a lot of cash that they got from whatever endeavor they're, 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 uh, they got the cash from. So how do you think about um, putting new money to work, especially substantial new money to work when 
you know, there's still arguably a hell of a lot of, a lot of uncertainty there. Really good question. And that's nice. You hit the bid on the real estate side in San Diego. Good for you. Second inning, as I mentioned, good, good job. Uh, beautiful weather there. Um, but I, I would say this, um, I don't like all or nothing. And I get that clients all the time. Sometimes like, I want to sell everything, you know, and then you look back, you know, um, again, I like incremental buying uh, on dips, so to speak. I like incremental selling. If we're in a kind of a, if the charts are kind of showing us and the VIX is elevated, I like the short rallies or selling the rallies. Um, and also, you know, there's, it's not all or none either. You know, you can use stop loss orders. Uh, you can buy protective puts. You can sell calls against a position. There's a lot of things you can do then kind of, you know, jump in and jump out. I, again, I know September could be challenging. October is always spooky, month of uh, Halloween, and we've had our big crashes there. Uh, but remember, we've also seen sometimes where, you know, we say, you know, sell away, go away. All these seasonality things don't always apply. But it, it, it's allocate some money. If you're really worried about a big decline, again, it does cost money to hedge. A big advice to protect the put. But I, I don't, you know, they're also, it sets up so well that September is going to sell off, sell off. And I hear this all the time that, you know, this is why uh, Michael has lead lag. There's a contrarian factor when he writes few understand what he's saying here. Again, I'm putting words in the mouth, but whatever the case is, and I think here the seasonality is few understand. We got to take it to the second level, not first. First level of seasonality. Get the hell out of us. Second level is, hmm, is that priced in already? What if we do get some decent news out of Jackson Hole? What if uh, we see peak inflation? What if the Fed uh, kind of pivots and goes more dovish? Are we still sitting out September, October because of seasonality? I, I wouldn't. Uh, well, and I think I think it's a point that it's a good point that there are these these long lag times, and we naturally will blame the current situation on a, the current administration. But I think to your point, which I think is valid, the, the, the it's always much more complicated, and there's always you know, conditions prior to the administration which you can blame on both parties that also got us to the same place. And, and I think this kind of goes back to, and this is a good way to close the space. Or it goes back to the, the the investment thesis, independent of one's viewpoint about why we're here, right? Because you know, to your point, there's there's always hindsight bias, but we have to look forward, especially if we're going to be putting capital at risk, right? So I'll go to you, Ken, on that on on sort of how to think about you know that point that these trends are not going to change, right? It may be slower or faster depending upon who's in power, but how do you sure. think about that from an investment perspective? Well, I, I have to say my background, I remember one of my electives in college many moons ago um, was alternative energy resources, renewable energy resources, probably my favorite class of college. Like I said, I drive an EV. I'm all for the environment. I'm all in. I just think that we're not there technology-wise. We need to invest in technology. I mean, the storage part of it, meaning, you know, you plug it in and you get 300 miles. Okay, great. That doesn't really work for everybody, you know? And um, also, I'm worried about the constraints that we have because we really haven't really built out this grid. All that will take investments. I'm just saying I think you can do both. In the meantime, I felt this administration, again, in my opinion, that it was leaning hard left-hand turn in an area that we're going already, but also dogging that of, of um, you know, the oil co- companies right now that are also trying to diversify into energy space. And by the way, the number one person on the planet Earth, I would say, is Elon Musk, who is doing, I believe, all the than pretty much anybody else on the planet. And this administration, this uh, this is him, and that's that's a problem because he's come up with great, some great solutions. I'm a big Apple fan. I'm a big Tesla fan, both as an investor, both as a user. And I think there's some lost opportunity here. So I do blame when you want to say, hey, you want to start pointing blames all over the place. The current administration is shooing Elon Musk, who, in my opinion, is number one person on the planet trying to save the planet. 
Yeah, and and Michael, look, I, I think it's a good point, and I do have to wrap up here. I didn't mean to just mute you for the sake of muting you. It just I, I do have to wrap up here. <laughs> Sorry about that, no. Michael. No, 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 that's all good. But it, 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 I think, and and I hope that those who recognize this is not. Obviously, I'm not trying to get into a political discussion, but I think that these are everything is more complicated than it always appears, right? And I think that's where these kind of conversations are helpful because you can ask a little bit deeper and and do so in a rational, conversational way. So I appreciate everybody that asked questions. Everybody here, please make sure you follow. Uh, Ken Mahoney on Twitter, uh, and uh, I will have another space. Yeah, that's right. It's at Mahoney, at Mahoney GPS. So you can look me up, but Mahoney GPS. And Mike, I want to thank you for not only this session here today, but your post, seriously, I stop and read your post. You know, we all flip through with our fingers and thumbs and stuff like that, but, and especially when you hit few understand this, seriously, there's a, there's a little like, I don't know, adrenaline rush that goes on that, it's so true. So, Mike, you must you must be wired reason. like hell then, because I say every single tweet. If that's the case, <laughs> I know the tweets come out like every 10, 15 minutes. I, I get it, but and those who are listening, uh, obviously, uh, again, thank you for your great questions. I didn't always have the answers that you wanted to hear necessarily, but this is why we had a debate, and especially the very last one. Really, I, I hope we do get there. Uh, and again, I'm investing into it by being owner of a Tesla. I'm investing into it in my own way, but I think there's a different way of getting there. But again, Michael, I thank you and your audience and uh everybody stay safe buckled up and uh we'll get through this market yeah thank you everybody do appreciate it cheers the content in this program is for informational purposes only you should not construe any information or other material as investment financial tax or other advice the views expressed by the participants are solely their own A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.